listening to Season 3 of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. I'm Aiden Thomason, and this week we are trying something a little different. Isha Hegde and I are reviewing the documentary Facing Sudan. This film is from 2007 and explains the history of the Sudanese conflict and follows the current state of the crisis from that decade, interviewing humanitarians who work in the country and interviewing resettled Sudanese refugees to get a holistic picture of what the crisis in Sudan looks like. It was made by a history teacher named Bruce David Janu and was received with critical acclaim upon its release. We would recommend you watch the documentary in conjunction with this episode, either before or after you listen. It is currently available to stream on Amazon Prime Video for easy access. Before we dive into our conversation, I want to give you guys a little context on the crisis in Sudan. In 2019, over 800,000 Sudanese people were displaced around the world. Sudan was ruled jointly by Egypt and Great Britain until January 1, 1956, when Sudan declared its independence. Beginning with their independence in 1956, the first Sudanese civil war began with the north and south regions of Sudan. This conflict is largely an ethnic and religious one, with the North being comprised mostly of Arab Muslims and the South being comprised mostly of Black Christians. Sudan's government has been controlled by Islamist leaders until this year actually when it became a secular state. So the South was fighting for representation and autonomy during both civil wars. In 1983, the Second Sudanese Civil War began with the Sudanese government and the Sudan People's Liberation Army in the South and lasted until 2005. This is the conflict that is referred to in Facing Sudan. The conflict ultimately claimed the lives of about 2 million from conflict, famine, and disease, and caused about 4 million to be displaced. Six years after the conflict, South Sudan gained its independence. In addition to the North-South Civil War, since 2003 there has been an ongoing conflict in Darfur, the western region of the country that also contains a non-Arab population, and in the regions of Southern Kordofan and the Blue Nile. There has been ethnic cleansing in these regions, and in 2009, the ICC charged Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide for his actions in the Darfur region. Currently, most of the refugees from Sudan are coming from Darfur, southern Kordofan, and the Blue Nile. You should also know that President al-Bashir gained power via a military coup in 1989 and ruled in Sudan until April of 2019 when the Sudanese people and military ousted him. They are currently operating under a transitional military government. That's a basic overview of the situation in Sudan. So without further ado, here is Isha's and my conversation about facing Sudan. As you may guess, today's episode focuses on the refugee crisis within Sudan. And honestly, it's a conflict that I found is largely not talked about when covering refugee crises. To be honest, it's a conflict that I wasn't super familiar with either. So watching this documentary was, you know, really educational and informative for me. Up front, like what was your initial like reaction after finishing the documentary? I guess my first reaction was just kind of how hard it was to watch. I think um, it was really good. And I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was amateur made, wasn't it? Like the, the guy yeah. that was working at the beginning. Um, it was just made by someone who worked there. Um, but it was just kind of unfathomable, like how little we do talk about this, like considering a lot of the images were really hard, but it was a really good story um, with a lot of really good people in it. But it was just really... I just kind of had like a whoa moment after watching it. Yeah, I know. Like, I completely agree. I feel like um, a lot of 
people, or maybe I won't say a lot of people, but me myself, I think of like a refugee crisis and I immediately end up zooming into like the Middle East for some reason. And I feel like that's like a lot of what I've covered and helped along with on the Seeking Refuge podcast. So maybe that aids in my geographical like association, but it was crazy because, you know, this crises started over like a 22 year period. So the fact that I hadn't really heard about it, or even if I'd heard about it, I didn't really understand how it had just dehumanized really, especially like women and children, as you see in the documentary was insane. And I don't know if you noticed, but like the first five minutes of the documentary was just a slideshow of these just completely, you know, heart-wrenching pictures of just really civilians being, you know, affected by this war. And I thought that was crazy because I haven't heard about it that much. And then to just see that like magnitude of destruction was horrific. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really heavy hitting right out of the gate. And I think um, kind of to go back to what you said a minute ago about like focusing in on the Middle East, I don't exactly know why this is, but I think it's kind of because that's obviously those conflicts are also like historically rooted but Syria has been a big thing in the news since 2015 so that's kind of taken up a lot of news attention the conflict in Sudan and then like in other places in Africa rooted in colonialism have been happening somehow since the middle of the 20th century so I think what that documentary was showing was a lot of breakdown that's been happening of like how people are dehumanized from decades and decades of violence which I think was just really 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 shocking to watch kind of just how it's steadily going down into something that's utterly dehumanizing. For context on colonial involvement in the conflict in Sudan, Sudan was part of the British Empire under joint British and Egyptian rule until 1956. Part of Britain's colonial ruling strategy, like other colonial powers, was to create or enhance ethnic or religious divisions between the people that they colonized. Because of the joint leadership with Egypt, who had previously conquered the northern part of Sudan in the early 19th century and was itself conquered by Britain, The British favored the Northern Arabs over the Southern Christians, which entrenched the divisions that led to the civil wars in Sudan and the genocide in Darfur. Um, Just the, so I'm not too familiar with colonial influence in Africa and like colonial powers in Africa in general in the past. So it was really surprising to me how it was so easy for, you know, like historians and people in the documentary now and then to pinpoint that Great Britain kind of furthered this divide in Sudan. And, you know, like, I think there was like a direct quote from the documentary, Great Britain favored the Islamic people in Sudan, like furthering this religious and ethnic divide there. So I think that's crazy also that I didn't really even know about that and how harming like colonial powers can be and how I guess especially colonial powers like exiting a country can induce like this mass panic and destruction and right now obviously like this refugee crisis that we're seeing right now. So It kind of made me almost wonder how our own country is factioned off in a way, maybe not to this extreme, but what influences kind of divide the United States. Um, And in a weird way at the, you know, like first starting point of the documentary, um, when they mentioned that the original refugee crisis was like 
around a 22 year long war. It was so hard for me to wrap my head around that because like that's over two decades and that's almost like over five times the length of like the civil war in the United States. So this is a divide between a country that is obviously so deeply rooted because I think, you know, you and I have learned about the civil war probably a lot more than, you know, we have this conflict in school and stuff like that. And, you know, that was obviously such a big deal for our country. And then to see like a 22 year plus crisis affect civilians mostly was just like crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, I like beyond comprehension because that's even like 22 years is longer than either of us has been alive. That's, it's just utterly unfathomable. But yeah, that's, and I mean, that's been the case in a lot of countries too. I see the U.S. is so, comparing it to the U.S., like the U.S. is only like 250-ish years old. These other countries that are like much, much older than that and like different stages of existence, like there's just a lot of history rooted in that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I don't like hearing all of the individuals that were like interviewed throughout the, you know, documentary, like really made me think how humanitarians are also involved in this process. And for like a lot of the beginning part of it, I think Brian and Jackie were talking. And for those of you who haven't watched the documentary yet, there are two humanitarians who went to Sudan and, you know, were trying to help with the conflict, obviously. And it kind of um, irritated me a little bit to say, or I got irritated around the fact that I think, you know, Brian, like, initially goes into Sudan and, you know, he's like, very surprised about the sheer amount of people in need just because like it isn't you know I don't think it had been described to him previously and it's only when he gets there that he realizes how bad it is so again you know Aiden I feel like you know maybe I'm assuming but like how much did you know about the Sudanese conflict before you know watching this documentary or doing like any prior research because I didn't realize until like the first half of Brian's story how many people exactly you know were facing these horrible conditions um I'm I didn't know that much about it I know I'm trying to think of how much because I've done research since we because we've talked to other people from South Sudan and then we interviewed um Salva Dutt over the summer who was in this documentary um so it was like kind of cool to see him pop up, like knowing we've talked to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did research after that. But prior to that, I knew that Sudan and South Sudan existed and that there was like a conflict and that it was recently, we talked about it in my um, international relations classes in terms of creating a new state, because it's really uncommon for the international community to approve of a new country being born when there's a civil conflict. Um, but I only knew about it in that context and I did not know really the, um, much of like the context for why they wanted to be a separate country or like the depth of the humanitarian crisis or anything about it, um, other than the fact that it was, like South Sudan was created, which has happened um, more recently than the documentary, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's like, you know, another change that we see Mm -hmm. at the end of the documentary. First, I 
I feel like Brian's, you know, story and excerpts in the documentary were incredibly hard hitting for me. Um, for those of you listeners who don't know, I'm a pre-medical student. I'm, I'm on like the pre-med track right now. And I believe, I don't remember exactly, but I think like Brian either was a doctor or a med student or just like he was obviously helping um, in a medically related facet and Sudan. And so I think like one thing that really stuck with me was that when Brian originally went first village or area that he helped in Sudan, he was just like so surprised how many people were initially put off by him because instead of bringing an abundance of food, he brought an abundance of medical supplies, which I guess in the long run would help the Sudanese people more. But I think like uh, by making that Point, Brian really highlighted how in like moments of conflict initially people can't think about the long term you know it's all about that short-term need for survival and that's like really hard for me I think you know obviously I speak from such a place of immense privilege to wrap my head around um, and you know as someone who wants to go into the medical field I kind of was left with this lingering thought of you know are medical professionals really in these situations doing all that they can from the start, you know? Um, or is there like even a certain level of care that these people trapped in these situations need first before medical professionals can enter? Because, you know, Brian was talking about how originally a lot of people were just unfortunately passing away because they were at this point of no resolve even with medical attention because of just this immense malnutrition and that was something for me you know that was crazy to think about too that even medical professionals without you know this proper basic food and nutrients can help these people and um i think also brian was talking about how these people were in such bad conditions a lot of them especially women and children that the medical supplies that they had just weren't enough initially, which, you know, they thought they brought like a ton of medical supplies, but then they realized how each person needed so much in order to, you know, bring them to a state that they, you know, <laughs> could heal from. And that like the medical shortage really, really surprised me because I think I initially had this perspective that when medical professionals are involved in something, it's almost this fairly... I wouldn't say easy, but fairly certain turnaround. And I think like Brian's story really showed that it was like a, you know, a continuous battle for a turnaround in some of these villages. Yeah, yeah. I, you definitely know more about the, the pre-med aspect than I do. But yeah, that was kind of striking. And he was kind of talking about like the context that we might be familiar with of like, I remember him talking about um, giving people IVs and like how if you put the IV in the wrong place in like the US, somebody could get really upset and sue you. And then like there you would try to do one right and then you're just having to do like the next one and the next one and the next one, not even having time to to really think about what you're doing, which is just kind of astounding to think about. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I remember him talking about that too. And that was like also like a really jarring moment for me that these people, you know were kind of left with no other option besides to put their full trust in these, you know, medical professionals and other humanitarians walking in. And then like another quote, I think this is one of the, you know, final things that 
Brian said in his like little section, but this is a direct quote from the documentary. Um, in reference to the conflict occurring in Sudan as a whole, it wasn't just one army fighting another army. It was armies fighting people, women and children, not even like the armies weren't even fighting each other. And I think this quote really stuck with me because um, I think it showed, unfortunately, how much civilians were affected by this. And, you know, Brian goes on to say kind of these like horrific methods they would use to essentially like eradicate these villages and just hurt these civilians and how it almost seemed like they weren't fighting each other at most of the points. They were just fighting people who happened to be in between the crossfire, which is just so un so unfortunate. And um, it kind of talked about how, I think throughout the documentary, how women and children in particular were just so affected by this. And especially the children, um, how like their schools were bombed, how their you know, homes were set on fire, how a lot of them were kidnapped and you know it's it's just horrific to hear that there wasn't any real conducive war between the two armies it was more like a war that just tortured these civilians which is awful to think about and again really hard for me to wrap my head around just how even like humanitarians who initially came in super separated from the conflict obviously noticed immediately right away what a immense detriment this was towards civilians who were just unwittingly and without even expressing an opinion thrown into it you know which is awful yeah yeah that's um it kind of echoes like conversations that you hear about of a lot of these big refugee crises when like the groups will have um we might talk about like the weapons that the soldiers have or things like that but just kind of thinking about the other side of that of um like they i think they mentioned in the documentary um, you didn't even need, like, military artillery like you might think you would need to, like, perpetuate this, like, genocide or ethnic cleansing or just, like, eradication of people. It's just that, like, when the odds are so stacked, like, having, when one side, like, doesn't have guns or anything, then there's, like, no chance of even defending yourself in the face of, in the face of that. Yeah, I know. It was, again, like this whole documentary, like, really jarring to hear that initially and then I I don't know I think the documentary again this is an older documentary and it was you know obviously like not made from a big production company so I felt like there was like this immediate jump from like Brian's story to Jackie's story so mm -hmm. she's like another humanitarian who came in and she kind of focused on the lost boys a lot which okay so I actually like thinking back to it I did a project on the lost boys in high school like in ninth grade and it had been a really long time since I'd even heard of them and obviously this was initially when they were first like came from Sudan to the States and they were kind of like the first people to bring awareness I feel like of the conflict going on um, in Sudan to the United States. Um, at the time when I did the project in high school, it was talking about how, I wish I like could find it, but it was talking about like how like a majority of them had graduated from their technical technical school or like colleges and working jobs or had moved back to Sudan, you know, with 
degrees from the United States. Whereas like it was really cool to see in this documentary how they were just initially starting out their like collegiate careers and a lot of them weren't even married yet, which like a lot of them are married now. Um, so that was a really cool connection back to my high school days. And also just focusing on The Lost Boys, um, I think really showed how long this conflict has lasted because for those of you who don't know, like The Lost Boys were a group of young men who kind of initially grew up in this conflict and were di displaced due to this conflict. So, you know, along like this 22 year period, they initially had known nothing else besides, you know, the conflict taking place within Sudan and this like immense civilian's destruction. Yeah, I also noted that because um, kind of, um, I think the Lost Boys are one of the few groups of refugees that the American public at least really knows about, at least um, we were little when that was happening, but um, people that were adults during that time like know who the Lost Boys are when you tell them. Um, but it, it also, like, for me, kind of put into context how much it was happening and then how much time has passed since this documentary came out and that it's, like, still going on 13 years later. Then also that, like, at that point, they'd been in the U.S. for a long time and had kind of already been through the media cycle and, like, had fallen out of it for a few years. It, it really showed for me, too, how, like, how long it had been happening. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point within the documentary, like, they mention how many quote unquote like lost boys there were. And you know, within the documentary, I think they only focused on the stories of a handful, but I think at one point there was a slide and there are estimated like 20 to 30,000 lost boys, which like just really puts into perspective that these lucky few were given the opportunity. And I think, again, when I was doing the project in high school, which was, you know, only around like four or five years ago, I was like, oh, it's, just a group of like these 15 men but those are you know the lucky 15 or 20 men who got to come to the united states represent their story which like watching this documentary i was like twenty thousand. that that is a lot of lost boys you know and that's just an estimate in a region of southern sudan so it's crazy to hear just what they've been through. And I'm kind of glad we also got to see um, Jackie's perspective throughout the story because I don't think she was necessarily like a medical professional or any type of, you know, I don't think she really had initially a distinct reason to be in Sudan besides like help in any way that she could. And I think um, Jackie's story and her focus on the Lost Boys and kind of like rehabilitating them in the States she talks about how children in, you know, wherever they are growing up in the world, whether it's in the United States or, you know, in a place with immense conflict like Sudan are kind of the same. She talks about like how like she initially comes to Sudan and like she's taking pictures and all of these little kids, you know, are like coming into the picture, like making funny faces and seeing those pictures was a big contrast to, I think the pictures that I originally saw like the first five minutes because I kind of see a sense of normalcy um, that made me even sadder because I think when I view these conflicts, I think it's, you know, like kind of this 
cycle of sadness, which it kind of is kind of like the cycle of sadness and conflict, but I almost view it as, oh, these people never have the opportunity to be real kids, but they do. And I think, you know, that Jackie's story really showed that, you know, they do have that childlike spirit and they do like to play games and color and just do normal kid things, but that, you know, oftentimes that's taken away from them at such a young age, or there are more priorities to think about, you know, than playing outside with friends. And that's what really saddened me from Jackie's story. I think, you know, again, growing up in the West, so separated from this, you kind of imagine that these kids never, I guess, not that they never really get to experience a childhood per se, but that their childhood is like so different when it is different, but it's it's really not. I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. Yeah. But, you know, initially, they have the same wants that, you know, every kid has. It's just they're never met, which is kind of like really sad to me to think about. Yeah, I think um, to go back real quick to what you're saying about the Lost Boys, about like thinking about maybe 20,000 that were helped seems like a kind of a big number, but thinking about the number like how different their lives became when they were the very few that got to come over. It was very it's like stark because it feels like this was a big project. Like there was a lot of media attention. There was like a lot of not resettled, which was good. But thinking about like how many more they represented that were still behind and all of their families are still in Sudan. But yeah, getting, getting back to what you were talking about with the kids, I think, um, I can't remember exactly how she said it, but the, the Alice, the girl at the end who had started the advocacy group, um, was talking about that because she um, had sent, like, she was the one that sent the cameras to them. Um, and then they, she was talking about kind of the difference between, um, like, those ads you see from uh, the donate 30 cents a day to, like, save a, save a child and, like, all those really sad pictures that kind of have the effect of, of being dehumanizing in a way of kind of being like, oh, look how sad this is. You can help by giving money versus um, her seeing, like, this showing their normal lives they are like normal human beings exactly like us, which makes the conditions that they're in all the worse, um, while also like putting a layer of respect on them rather than like seeing them as objects of help. Seeing these are kids that like have as much agency as the kids that are outside your street right now and but are just in like, these awful conditions. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. And that's kind of what I was, you know, trying to get around to how I think I and other people from, you know, the West, like Alice was saying, may view these people as like incredibly separate, like almost living these lives of like perpetual sadness and destruction when, you know, like you're saying, initially these people and, you know, they should have the same agency, especially the kids as, you know, elementary school aged kids here should, you know, but it's just, they've never been given that opportunity, which I think almost with people viewing this documentary, I feel like these, they see these people less as like props in an ad, which I feel like is unfortunately what ends up happening and more as individuals who have real stories and feelings and thought processes that have just been, you know, completely thrown off by war, which is so unfortunate and then I think like right after this or at some point we got to see Salva which shout out to Patrick he did an interview with Salva which you all should definitely check out 
It was one of my favorite episodes, but um, I think I, you know, got to hear more about Salva's story, which was really cool. And also, again, these like horrible um, conditions and diseases that often plague these people because of, you know, the situation that they're in. Salva kind of talked about, I believe it was guinea worm, which essentially like is like parasitic worm that affects these people due to unclean drinking water and I think at one point Salva kind of stated how it was often surprising for humanitarians that came into Sudan to see how these very rudimentary diseases that had been essentially weeded out of you know countries you know, western countries you know like the United States were still killing so many people at such a high rate so again, as like someone who's interested in medicine and wants to go into the medical field, this was a pretty jarring moment of like, oh my gosh, you know, diseases like AIDS and, you know, like parasitic diseases such as like guinea worm were still affecting people at such a high rate and such secondary killers, you know, um, such high affecting secondary killers. Um, because I think at the point that even this documentary was filmed, like, these diseases had been eradicated or, you know, were coming to a close in Western countries, whereas, you know, they were at an all-time high killing people here. So that was like a big perspective change that I had, like, after watching Salva's segment. I think it was interesting, too, to, to have talked to him, like, this year and kind of have seen, like, that he's been able to impact, like, a lot more of that region since then, which was really inspiring to know, because um, he was talking about water for Sudan at the time and like starting to build wells and correct these things and then kind of being able to see that. Asa was both affirming um, that he's still doing work and has been able to accomplish a lot more since but also kind of saddening that even 13 years later it's not it's not completely better. Yeah I know and I think um, it's almost like an affirmation that people need to bring more focus again back to this region and almost that I think like interviewing Salva now and listening to Salva's interview 13 years later although the conflict right now is different and I guess it's not so much of a hot issue if that makes any sense so maybe there isn't as much like civilian carnage just the level of impact that it's had on society there these secondary killers such as illness and you know the impact that it has on socioeconomic conditions is just like something that can't be fixed even 13 years from you know when major hot conflict was still occurring which is crazy to me and it it's really put into i think um perspective for me how these regions even after these you know major conflicts are like I'll, I'll phrase them as like hot conflicts so even after these physical wars take place the socioeconomic conditions are just like impacted and kind of stay at these really horrendous levels which affects a lot of these people and refugees you know I think for years onward you know from this hot conflict because you because I think like you know one could rationally think oh you know like after a ceasefire has been made after you know a war has been resolved like everything should just rebound you know within a year or two years and it's just like no not really it really doesn't that's like 
kind of saddening to hear, but I'm really glad again that people like Salva are trying to help, you know, their home regions. And yeah, I guess it was, I guess hearing his interview now and then seeing him in this documentary, you know, there is like a, oh, like this has been done. And I know this has been done now, but it's still saddening to see how there are so many things that they can't fix just because they're just these residual problems, you know? Yeah. Um, I will say that, although I know, like, the the war is done, but I know there are still, like, um, ethnic groups that are fighting that are, like, kind of fighting the same battles that were being fought in the Civil War, um, and there's still, like, um, problems with, like, infrastructure and government corruption, um, but then it's just kind of crazy how, like, those things, even after you, you would think, like you said, like, a ceasefire ends all of that, there's still, like, residual violence and then also, like, residual damage that's all, like, still coexisting and is still really urgent. Yeah, definitely. And then this is something that I hadn't really focused on, but I believe the last like 25 or 30 minutes of the documentary focused on this region in Sudan called like Darfur, which had a very, I guess, publicly spoken about ethnic cleansing or genocide. Aiden, like, had you heard about this region really a lot before doing or in depth before watching this documentary? Because Again, I'm not super familiar prior to watching this documentary, but I didn't really know that this was even recognized on like a large world scale, you know, as a genocide. Um, I heard of it as a buzzword. Like I've, I've heard people say things like the situation in Darfur a lot, but not a lot of extended conversation about it. So I feel like sometimes the tendency is, um, Hopefully this isn't jumping ahead, but I was thinking about the the part when Alice was saying in school they were learning about the Holocaust and saying never again, never again, but then it still is happening again and again. Um, mm -hmm. I think like Darfur was one of those where it's a buzzword, so it's like permeated the public consciousness enough to where I know the word associated with genocide, but then there's also like it's in conversation with um, all of these other genocides that are happening in other places too. Like I think I would hear it in the same mouthful as Rwanda or um, the Rohingya or like um, kind of added in onto this laundry list, but not really talked about a lot in its own, like, situation in any depth, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I again, have, like, heard it a lot as a buzzword, but I've never really zoomed in to the conflict that went on there. Um, and I believe this was a quote that really stuck out to me from, uh, I believe his name was Dr. Eilrich. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but he's a medical professional that went to the Darfur region to really help um, with this conflict that was ongoing. And he kind of talked about how watching these civilians pass away as a medical professional was incredibly jarring to him and like affected him pretty deeply because he talked about how these people like specifically children were not passing away gracefully and I think what he meant by that was they you know even if let's say they were in kind of I guess this like place of conflict and got hit by a piece of shrapnel or something like that within this like hot conflict that was ongoing 
And that shrapnel was removed from them. And, you know, it seemed like they were making a rebound. It was this like lack of medical care. And again, like these socioeconomic conditions that they were put in that kind of made these very like rudimentary infections or things that would essentially be immediately treated in the States, but couldn't be treated, you know, there kind of affect these kids and make their passing all that painful and, you know, all that horrific just because they, it was kind of like, their passing was very um, long, for lack of a better term. It was very like extenuated. And um, I think, you know, when we, not that anyone should be thinking about, you know, children passing away, but like, I think that was incredibly painful for me because, you know, when anyone passes away, I think we just want them to have the least pain possible or think that, you know, all of their conditions are being met when they pass away and just to imagine um, people, especially children, you know, these like young toddlers and infants most of the time, like they were talking about within Darfur kind of especially go through these incredibly painful, drawn out deaths was just um, something that I had not really thought about. And um, that kind of, that quote really stuck with me, I think. Yeah. I think, um, thinking about that too, I know we kind of touched on like gendered violence earlier, but that was something that came up a lot in this part, again, too, of, um, I can't remember exactly the quote, but talking about like how hard it hit the women and children of like, sometimes you think about people dying in battle and don't really think typically, um, like maybe men will be victims when a, like someone comes through a village, like will be killed immediately, but then like the children and women are left to starve and die of like these other things later and like to deal with that trauma and like carry that weight. I'm just kind of thinking about like you were saying, like we're our, our attention is on it while the violence is happening, but then international community like so easily turns away when people are still suffering. And just it's just unimaginable to think about the the depth of the suffering. Yeah. Perfect segue because I think the final quote that I really wanted to focus on and again I think really encompasses the reason that this documentary was created was I I can't remember unfortunately who said this quote but um, it was stated that a lot of the international community kind of thinks of these conflicts as this far away African problem um, which I think was incredibly damning to how really the international, you know, community views it. Like you just said, you know, they initially view this hot conflict or initial, you know, like tension and they kind of see it. And then once, you know, a piece of paper is signed for the ceasefire, once, you know, two politicians shake hands, I think the international community is like, oh, everything is really solved. Now it's, you know, all up to this country to figure it out and completely like rehabilitate everyone and obviously this documentary highlights how difficult that really is and i think the conflict that we or i think the perspective that we've been given working on this podcast you know like patrick had the opportunity to interview salva and kind of like the research that we do for this podcast in general just shows that oftentimes the most damaging thing is the aftermath at the end or the aftermath is as equally damaging as the initial conflict that occurred because it's hard I think for these countries that have gone through this conflict to really especially ethnic conflicts like this where you know the country is fighting this war because of division and then 
I think it's really hard for them to come back together, you know, at the end of this conflict. And I think that's something that's so easy for the international community to turn their eye away from, um, especially like the Western international community, because we haven't really thought of, I guess, you know, in the States, our country being factioned, you know, in really long time. And I think, um, I think that's something that the international community really needs to focus on as a whole, really seeing the progress of these nations after hot conflict, you know, making sure that these nations leaders are being held accountable, not only during the conflict occurring, but afterwards, you know, what are their plans? Are there plans set in stone? And I think that's what this quote and this documentary will really tries to encompass, you know, it focuses a lot on the conflict occurring, but it really, I think, for me, opened my eyes on how damaging the aftermath of these conflicts are as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll say too, I think that that's why it's so important to hear from people that are like actually from these places. Like I think um, you get a completely different perspective when you're just seeing the news or like looking into like what the UN has done on a certain conflict or something because they're the international community's focus is like really only on it right when like you said when the war is happening or like when the politicians are shaking hands but like um it's really important to also understand in every conflict there's human beings that are involved and there's history that's involved right like like we were talking about earlier with Sudan it might not feel like we're involved in this conflict because it is like like you said this like far away problem but really like European influence especially is why those ethnic conflicts exist and right and like the global economy is so interconnected that these people are less far away than we feel like, especially with the internet. Like we can just, like we Skyped Salva from South Sudan. Like we can just get on a phone call with anybody anywhere in the world right now. So it's, we've never been closer, I guess, but we still kind of tend to, to look away when we want to, which isn't really an option, I don't think. Yeah, I know. And um, I think they had a couple of slides. I was hoping you wanted to focus on this, but you know, like what do you think has changed now since? The con, because obviously the documentary is much older. You said like thirteen years, I think. Mm -hmm. Then, you know what's going on now. So, what do you think has changed now, or what are some major changes that you see in this region? Yeah, so I really liked that they added this at the beginning because that was one thing. Um, I thought this documentary looked really good, so I was like glad that we picked it. But I was thinking of um, South Sudan didn't exist yet when this was created. Um, the South Sudan became independent in 2011, um, but they did add slides at the end, like the version on Amazon has um, slides that I think go all the way up to 2019 of different changes that have happened. Um, so South Sudan is independent now. Um, there's still like um, different like regional conflicts that'll pop up, like um, armed groups that are hopping up. And then um, I know that there's like issues with um, the president in Sudan. As we mentioned, Omar al-Bashir was in power from 1989 to 2019 and led a brutal dictatorship characterized by human rights abuses, ethnic cleansing in Darfur, and freedom restrictions. However, since April 2019, he is no longer in power and a transitional government rules in his place. I know sometimes 13 years doesn't feel like a long time, but then on the other hand, like there's a whole new country that exists in this region that didn't before. That was our very own Aiden and Isha talking to us about their experiences watching Facing Sudan. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, 
email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making our shows possible. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in the next one.